Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. We get everyone's favorite Alexander Hamilton on the show, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who for some reason is attached to the show and plays our Texan character, Elise Corsby, and really... Can anyone say that he did a good job in this role? Like, this was bad, right? I wanted so much to like this because I was like, they'll find a way to pull it off. He doesn't really seem like it, but they've done such a good job with casting everyone else. They'll find a way. And I just, for the life of me, I can't find a way to justify it. What's up, children and demons? And welcome to another episode of Pentology. This is Steven, and Josh and I are going to be reviewing the first season of the His Dark Materials TV show from HBO. What's up, Josh? Hey, Steven. Nice to be with you. Yeah, so I just barely watched this. I think the first season came out several months ago, right? This is not a new thing. Yeah, it was It was 2019. It started coming out, I think, end of 2019. Okay, so I'm already looking forward to a new season pretty soon, hopefully, assuming that production was got through covid yeah i actually think that they filmed season one and season two at the same time or something or filmed a lot of season two already so i think that we should be still i don't think we have a release date but i haven't heard of any delays that are coming because of covid from it okay that's good news yeah so this is a this is a series that is based off of philip pullman's series his dark materials is the name of the series the golden compass is the first book and Josh and I reviewed all three of the books. So if you're a book fan, check out those reviews on our channel as well. And they made a movie of The Golden Compass back in like 2013 or so. And it flopped for a lot of reasons. But the TV show, in my opinion, at least, was really good. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, the movie, I remember watching that in high school. I think we talked about this a little bit previously. And I wasn't blown away by it. I hadn't read the books or anything, but I think i like lost interest halfway through and just had it on in the background or something so i was not too impressed by the movie when it came out although it had a really great cast i think that they just shied away from the ending which kind of ruined things a bit for the movie i don't think that they really were trying to stay too close to the source material yeah both i think both the movie and the tv show had really good casts i would say the movie actually maybe had a slightly stronger cast but really can't complain too much about any of the casting except for one cast member that i think the fandom is united against kind of mocking is wondering what yeah you know the interesting thing is i think that the movie had a bigger budget cast but i think that the tv show had a cast that did a better job of portraying the characters specifically lyra i think just flew like knocked it out of the park she did such an amazing job in the tv show yeah as far as the tv show goes just kind of high level the casting was awesome the Budget for the set was really good. I, I was really convinced of what I was seeing. HBO always seems to really put money into making it into a high quality, believable set. The costuming was really good. The screenwriting, everything. I mean, I really can't complain too much about the show. I, I was really into it. Yeah, I agree. Um, it really immersed you in the world because of the production that they put into it. Still kind of tangentially to that. Did you like how they did the demons, the CGI with them and everything? Yeah, I I thought, I mean, I was, they, they looked like pretty convincing animals. And I mean, especially like Lord Azrael's snow leopard was really beautiful. Yeah. And I mean, you didn't see much of it, but 
uh, th- that was a highlight. And the golden monkey was really well done, really. I mean, that was probably the demon that was on the screen the most. And it was pretty fierce and evil. Yeah, it was. I really liked how they did individual demons. I think there was a little bit of controversy after episode one that they didn't have very many demons on the screen. Like, because every person is supposed to have a demon and you could tell that uh, like kind of wasn't the case if you looked for it in, in episode one. And then they seem to fix it in later episodes and there's no way that they could have really gone back. So I don't really know what happened with it. I think that they just maybe put a little bit more effort into it as the season went on or something. But that was a little bit of controversy after the very first episode premiered. I guess I didn't even notice in the first episode. I was kind of thinking about this later on because in some of the later episodes, it's more important to see who has a demon and who doesn't. And I was trying to tell and I couldn't really tell. But I mean, it's understandably difficult, right? Because the demons take different forms and they're sometimes small creatures and it's hard to like attach them to individual people. That's the thing. Like who's to say that they don't have a little mouse in their pocket or a snake up their sleeve or what, you know, like it's kind of hard to say, oh, well, they didn't have a demon just because it wasn't on screen. Right, right. So before we talk too much into spoilers, we're going to go through all eight of the episodes and we're going to talk through each of them. No spoilers yet. Before we go too far, let me do a plug for our channel. If you like what we're putting out, check us out at Pentology Books. We have a website, www.pentologybooks.com. That is all of our relevant info. And if you want to chat with us more, hop on our Discord. Our invites are on social media and everywhere. And we'd love to have you tell us what we did wrong, what you like. And if you really support the, if you really like the show, then uh, check us out on Patreon and we put up some fun bonus content there. Awesome. Yeah. Discord is a lot of fun. It's, I spend too much time every day on it, but we have really engaging people on there. So jump on. It's awesome. Yeah. We try to do extra things for the fandom community. Like we're just uh, wrapping up a top five series competition. So we did a bracket competition on Twitter. And I think next month we're going to do like an all time favorite character in fantasy books. And anybody that's a Lord of the Rings fan, I was the only person in the entire 16 that put Lord of the Rings in their top fives. So if there's any Lord of the Rings fans out there that are listening to this, I think we need some more representation. We might need to review the Lord of the Rings books. We haven't done anything close to that yet. That's true. That's true. But still, preemptively giving a shout out. Okay, so let's just kind of start talking through the different episodes. And I think as we get into different points of the episode, we'll we'll run off into different tangents. So the first episode starts and right away there is, at least in my notes that I took, there's a talk of Lyra being kind of like a prophesied figure of some kind. And I thought that was interesting. It's something that I both like and don't like. I feel like it's overdone. And this kind of like child of prophecy thing is a trope that I see too often and I'm a little tired of it. But at the same time, these these books were written back in the 90s. so can't really fault it there like maybe it was one of the first ones and maybe i'm just kind of tired of the witcher books and series where siri is always this child of prophecy anyway did you notice this josh do you care about this trope at all it was not a negative thing for me at all this was coming out around the same time that harry potter was getting big right and harry potter definitely leans a lot more into the prophesied the chosen one the boy who lived and this one didn't lean into it nearly as much as Harry Potter does. It's kind of an element of the story, but, you know, it's not and on every page. It's not being referenced. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how this series advances in the second and third seasons. I imagine they're probably just doing three seasons to cover the three books. 
because there were definitely some things in the books that I thought were not the tightest plot arcs, and this was one of them. And honestly, I think the TV show did a better job than the first book at setting up the rest of the series. So that might be somewhat of a hot take, because I know the books are really popular, but I think in a lot of ways, the TV show did a better job of creating a cohesive narrative. Really quick, are we going to spoil stuff in the books? Do you want to spoil like the third book? Yeah, that's a good point. I think we're I think we're going to avoid doing that. So I mean, okay. I guess I kind of like gave my opinion on the book series, yeah. but we're not going to do any solid plot point spoilers. So if you've only read the first book, or if you haven't read any of the books, and you just watched the TV show, we're not going to spoil anything past the content in the first season of the show. Okay. And it's interesting, because the first season of the TV show does spoil some of the second book a little right. bit. So, so we're going to talk about everything that's on the TV show. And doing so, that might spoil some of the second book and all of the first book. So there's your spoiler warning, I guess. Fair enough. And I guess before we go too far, let's also do our content warning okay. that we usually do. So this, even though it's on HBO, HBO often has more TV MA type shows. This is a TV 14 show. And as far as content content goes, there's really not too much, right? There's pretty minimal language, if any. The violence that happens is kind of off screen. And there's a couple more violent parts in the books that are not shown explicitly in the TV show. And then there's no sexual content at all. So it's a pretty mild spoiler warning. And kind of like we said in the books, the most adult content are more of like the thematic portions of the show, like getting into more of the religious uh, algorithm, <laughs> religious allegories. <laughs> wow, Stephen. Yeah, I totally back that 100%. Like in terms of on-screen content, it's stuff that it might even be a PG type movie. You know, there's there's a little bit of violence, but... Most episodes, there's not a whole lot of on-screen violence or sex or language. It's more so if you're worried about your kids being exposed to some thought that doesn't typically align with with orthodox religious values, then you might want to be keep an eye out for that. And we can kind of talk about that more as we review the show. But honestly, I thought the TV show did a really good job of not blatantly like slamming the church. And the Catholic Church is probably the most connected with the magisterium, but they set up, you know, this other church and sure it's a, it's somewhat of a parody of the Catholic church. Like, I don't think you can deny that too much, but I, I really have never felt that this show or book is blatantly like trying to disprove what people, what people's core beliefs or anything. I mean, I know it's had a lot of controversy, but I am fine with it. And I grew up with pretty strong, you know, Christian values and have them now still. Yeah, I th- I think that where a lot of people run into an issue with this is when it's being read in like elementary school without parents really knowing what's going on in it. You know, so I could see that. I could see people of having like a an issue with that and being justified in that if they're reading it at a really young age before and the teacher is like maybe pushing an agenda or something with the book. Like I could see parents having an issue with that. But that just comes down to being a good parent and like knowing what your kid is reading and knowing what they're working on in school and then talking to them about it and helping them process it and helping them align it with their beliefs or the beliefs that you want to um, help nourish in them. So, Right. And so the show sets up a, a church, a magisterium that has been lying to the people and, and controlling the world pretty much. I mean, sure. And there's a lot of symbolism and connection to the Catholic Church. But I think in, I mean, religion 
is such a common theme in all books and in, in different fantasy books. Brandon Sanderson uses religion a lot. There's often corrupt religious leaders, etc., in different books. And it's it's a common plot thread. It's a common plot element. And I don't really have an issue with it appearing here. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the only thing that I would push back on is that these books, um, a lot of times are read by like children, like pretty young children. And so I think that's where people have an issue with it. Like Brandon Sanderson, it's not really geared towards like eight year olds. And so sure. they can have, you know, a little bit higher themes and religious discussions and like um, somebody being an atheist and not believing in God versus somebody, you know, they can deal with more of those type of themes, whereas this is more geared towards a younger audience. So I can see why parents might have an issue with it if it was being taught like behind their back or whatever. Yeah, that, that that's fair. And I guess we can talk about this more um, on the Discord too, because this is kind of a hot button topic. So going past, uh, back into the plot, as the story begins, one thing that kind of struck me right away was the setting. I really liked the setting. I thought it was very well done. I was very immersed into it. But it was a little different than what I was expecting from reading the books because I thought it was a little more modern, if you will. Like the technology was a little further advanced than I was expecting. Like at the very beginning, there's the scene with Lord Azriel who comes in on a helicopter with baby Lyra. And I was thinking, a helicopter? That doesn't seem like what I'd expect from reading the books. I always picture it as more of like a 19th century kind of Wild West type atmosphere only at, at like a refined college you know right more of a steampunk type setting yeah yeah i think it does a good job because the more i think about it and the more i thought about it as i saw those elements come up on the show is that this is a world that's kind of tangential to ours and so it might have developed different technologies at a different rate i liked it because who's to say that they couldn't have you know invented a helicopter before they really you know had my, like a cell phone or whatever, which I know that happened in our world too, but things could have progressed at different rates. And Right. It's definitely a, a parallel universe. It's not supposed to be our our world 100 years ago. And you can see that in some of the, the maps that are made. I think they might be more fan maps, but it's like the world, but all the continents are a little different and the countries are different and have different names. So yeah, that, that's fine. I guess it just wasn't exactly what I was expecting after reading the books, but I was okay with it. In terms of the setting too, how do you think that the TV show did at like making you feel like, do you think it got the same kind of wonder and, and evoked the same emotions that the books did? Yeah, I think so. I think it was really, really immersive. I've already said that is really expansive and yeah, it was very, very well done. I, I was very into it. I agree with you. I think that the gold standard for me on this is Lord of the Rings. Like it took this, what the books did and really immersed myself and, uh, similar ways although you know they made some di changes but it was still very immersive and made me care a lot about it and i think that this did a similar thing where it took what i loved about the books and brought them to the screen and really made me care about it in the same ways that lord of the rings did to the books. so i think that this met the gold standard and is one of the best I, in my opinion one of the best adaptions from a book to a show that i've really seen as far as did I feel like I was in the world for sure? Like I felt like everyone had demons. I was just part of everyday life and the different societies, you know, the Egyptians and the magisterium people and the academic people, they all felt very realized and the characters themselves were very well defined and everyone was totally there 
into the world. So yeah, I, I would say absolutely. I was uh, very well immersed into it. And I think it meets the your gold standard as well. Awesome. So speaking of the Magisterium, wow, you had this view of this huge cathedral complex thing that was very well done. All of the very sharp lines, etc. kind of made this like sinister feel to it. The priests or the, or the, what are they called? The different fathers were all very severe looking and, and they looked like they were probably up to no good. So I thought the Magisterium was very awe-inspiring and also very... Uh, what's the word, fierce, or or they were just, you had this kind of foreboding about them, like you don't want to mess with these guys. Yeah, I agree. And that's something that the show did a really good job at, is using costume and and sets to really convey what characters are going to be doing and like what feeling they want you to get from the characters. And I think that was best displayed with the Magisterium. Yeah, I think the costumes that highlighted for me were costumes that were my highlights were the Magisterium for sure. I thought Mrs. Coulter always had a really nice outfit that kind of uh, met with whatever setting was happening in that episode. And I thought the witches also looked really cool. I think you only really saw Serafina Pecula, but those costumes were, were really cool as well. And, and the Egyptians were also really well defined as their own different people. I, I really can't take issue with anyone's costumes. I thought all the costumes, I was really into the costuming. Yeah, yeah. One other thing, as you talk about kind of the gold standard and how well of an adaptation it was from the books. So I saw one of these articles that usually just kind of pops up on my Google recommended articles. The headline was, where are these shows that were supposed to be the next Game of Thrones now? Game of Thrones finished up about a year ago, and all these different shows were built to be the next Game of Thrones. And it walked through these uh, several different shows. I think the Lord of the Rings show was mentioned, His Dark Materials was mentioned. It talked about The Expanse, talked about The Witcher. It didn't talk about the Wheel of Time for whatever reason, so I don't know how much credibility I actually give this article, even though it was written by The Ringer, which is a little disappointing. But it was critical of his dark material saying that it wasn't the next Game of Thrones and it was kind of falling short of the expectations. And the whole time I was just like shaking my head thinking, what were you guys expecting? Because this show is never supposed to be that. It's its own thing. And it's not, you know, this expansive world that Game of Thrones created. It's it's more of a condensed character story follows Lyra and Will as you get into a little bit little bit later on. But I thought for what it was, it did a really great job. I totally agree. And I think this is something we've talked about a little bit before, but it's so annoying to have everything compared to Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Why is everything compared to Game of Thrones? It would be like comparing every single sci-fi movie to Star Wars. Like, is Star Wars a good sci-fi movie? Yeah. Should everything be compared to it? Absolutely not. Like, you know, it's a space opera and it has its good things and its bad things, but it's not like every movie should be trying to mimic it or try to appeal to the same fan base that Star Wars has. You know, it's the same thing with Game of Thrones. Like there's a huge, you know, number of different plot elements and people that different fantasy books appeal to. And so we just know stop comparing things to Game of Thrones, even though probably some net network executives are just like, we want the next Game of Thrones because that made HBO billions of dollars or whatever. So I it probably is being driven by that, but it's still annoying being a fantasy fan and just seeing everything compared to Game of Thrones. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that these things are just clickbait articles at this point. Yeah, and <laughs> it gets us to click on them. Yeah, I, I always <laughs> fall for it. <laughs> anyway, that's that's my rant about not everything needs to be the next Game of Thrones, you know? And if Wheel of Time just tries to be the next Game of Thrones, I'm going to be disappointed in it, honestly. We will see. Hopefully that comes out 
next year. Although looks like COVID's pushing things back further and further. Okay, well, let's get back onto his dark materials. Yeah, so I thought this first episode wrapping up really just set up all parts of the story well. It was a little different than the book, but it was good in the way that a TV show needs to be in order to succeed. For example, like it didn't give away too soon that Mrs. Coulter was part of the Gobblers and it set up the Egyptians really nicely and they all kind of, the different people had different feels to them. And so that's going to help me as I go through the next episode, identify right away. I don't think I was ever lost as to what was happening in this show at all because of how well the first episode set everything up. So one thing reading the book that prevented me, so I read it, I tried to read it a few years ago, like four or five years ago, and I got kind of lost in all the all the different schoolyard politics. I know it's only like the first 30 or 40, 30 pages of the book. It's not too long, but I thought that that's what the whole book was going to be about, about these like schoolyard politics between these like little factions. And they just cut that like pretty much completely from the TV show. And so I'm kind of happy that they did. And they just like got straight into the plot instead of spending some time just running around Oxford with Lyra. And there was still enough of it. Like it set up her and Lyra, her and Roger, running through the crypts and all the characters were set up, but it did it in a way that it also advanced the plot. Yeah, exactly. That was just the one thing I noticed is that it jumped into the plot and characters and didn't spend too much time. And it, it set up the setting through these magnificent costumes and sets that we've already talked about instead of really having scenes where she was interacting with these different groups and playing pranks and all the stuff that the book had. Okay. So in the second episode, and I guess we're not going to spend too much time touching on all the different plot points, but in the second episode, this was the Mrs. Coulter episode, if you will. So it set her up as a really interesting kind of embattled character because she's a mother, but she also has this uh, you know, duty to the church and she's running this uh, the, the gobblers and, and she's trying to you know do this research into dust and figure out how to cut away the children and their demons, etc. But she's also got this child, right? Even And Lyra doesn't know that she is her mother at this point. So I thought this did a fantastic job of setting up Mrs. Coulter. I thought the actress, Ruth Wilson, who I wasn't familiar with before, the show did a really good job of portraying her. And I honestly, this was another thing that I thought was done better than the books, because right from the beginning, we got a sense of who this character was and all of her different motivations. And she's a slightly unhinged even, but in the books, you don't really get that quite as much. And that's what this actress did such an amazing job portraying is here's this woman that's like keeping it together on the outside, but is like being torn apart on the inside. That's what I got really got from her portrayal of this is she always had like the smile on and she looked pretty and she looked put together, but like it just seemed like it was just bubbling beneath the surface and like it was just going to come out at any time that she was like wicked, you know? And she's a little different than the books describe. So I think she's blonde in the books and is supposed to just look slightly different. But I mean, whatever. You can't. It's a different adaptation. Yeah. And if we're going to nitpick the way that uh, actors and actresses look, which some fans like to do, I don't think you can do it. it you're really just setting yourself up for failure if, if that is something that bugs you. So I thought she did a really good job of, you know, being who she was and playing the character. I agree. This is something that we were talking about on Discord and we've talked about a lot before is like the Wheel of Time and how they change the characters and how some people take the cover art and saying, oh, that it should be exactly like the cover art. And then I thought about Dresden and how like literally it's become a joke, but on every single cover of the book, he has a hat on, never wears a hat on the book. I know that it's become a joke, 
but it didn't start out as a joke. You know, it started out as this is the artist portraying Dresden. And so that really right. helped me shift my like thinking on like, this is just like the cover art is one person's, you know, interpretation. This is going to be another person's interpretation. And even if it does contradict like their color, it's not that big of a deal. It's about how the actor portrays them. And she did an amazing job. Yeah. Unfortunately, we just get the cover art stuck in our head sometimes. And we think, oh, yeah, they look like this. And so then as you read through the book, you always have that image in your head. And so then after reading all the books, then you go to watch a show and you're like, wait, this is not what I was expecting. But I think you just have to try to get away from that. I know if you if you disagree with this, hop on Discord and we can talk about this because it is a conversation that I think needs to be had, especially as we move into more and more adaptions coming out. Yeah, agreed. Especially with Wheel of Time. So with the, in the second half of this episode, th- this was the episode where Lyra moves in with Mrs. Coulter, right? And like lives in this opulent lifestyle in her penthouse. And then you also start to get the stuff with Will's world already. And you have Lord Boreal going into, into his world. So I was split on how much I liked this. I like that they brought in this plot line right away. And I think it will, will be a more seamless run into book two rather than having all this exposition in the second season. But at the same time, I thought just the like small pieces we got in every episode were a little strung out to the point where I was often just wondering, what are we doing here? What is the point? And I feel like if I hadn't read the books, I would have been really lost and just bored during these parts because it was so slow. And nothing really happened with Will's world until the end. Yeah, I can see that. I was so happy that they were doing it this way that I think I kind of looked past that. I was so happy that they were bringing Will in early because Will is probably my favorite character from the series. And so maybe that was why I kind of gave it a pass. And also, did you did you binge watch these like one after the other or no? No, it was more like I would watch one or two and I probably watched it over the course of two to three weeks, maybe a month. Yeah, because I was just watching these every week as they came out on HBO. And I think when you do that, you get less annoyed with the boring parts because you're so excited for it all week that you're just going to like savor every moment of the show. At least that's how I am when I watch things as they come out. You know, I'm like, I'm just fully in this. I'm paying attention to it and I really want to watch it. So I don't know. I didn't have an issue with it like you did. Yeah, my main issue was I was just confused as to what was going on. And I know that previously I said that the show did a really good job of setting things up, setting things up to not confuse you. But this was one part where I was just not really sure. Like, okay, what is the deal with Stanislaus Grumman and Lord Boreal is like investigating this, trying to find this hole in the skull thing. And he wants to find John Perry. It was just, I was not into it compared to Lyra's storyline, which was very straightforward and you knew what was happening. The other side, I don't, I, I, yeah, I didn't think it was done that well. Fair enough. That's fine. So also in this episode, this is when you found out that Israel was her father because Mrs. Coulter let it slip. That was a big moment. And I thought she did a really good job. Mrs. Coulter, Ruth Wilson did a really good job of delivering this line. And then you saw Lyra's shocked reaction right away. This was different than the show as well, because I think in the show, the Egyptians did an info dump for both her parents, right? I mean, in the books. I honestly can't remember. I can't remember how it happened in the books. Regardless, in the third episode, Lyra runs away from Mrs. Coulter. At the end of the second episode, she does. And then the third episode is all about the Egyptians because she uh, she joins up with them. And this was a really good contrast comparing the way that the Egyptians were 
I guess, raising her or her guardians compared to Mrs. Coulter. In the previous episode, you have these two different mother figures for her. I thought it did a really good job of showing that in backtrack episodes. And you got a sense of, okay, they both, both uh, Mrs. Coulter and Ma Costa kind of have this affection for her. But one of it's real and one of it is got a lot of issues under the surface. And I do think that even they both are, in a sense, trying to use Lyra, you know, even Makosa is like still still thinks that Lyra might be able to help get well back, especially as she starts being able to use the lithiometer. Or Billy, right? Her son. That's yeah, sorry, name. Billy, Billy. Yeah, that's true. She's definitely using her as kind of like a figurehead for the for the movement, right? Because she has to convince the other Egyptians to go get Billy. But I think that 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 she did such an amazing job at just showing how you would kind of be feeling if your son was just kid was ripped away from you while still showing so much love towards Lyra. And it would be really easy to become embittered by that. I think if you um, have a son that's ripped away and then this girl that is just kind of full of herself and cocky and like, doesn't really appreciate what she has kind of like Lyra, you know? And I think that the show does an amazing job at really putting you in people's shoes and thinking, okay, what emotions are they experiencing? What are they going through? And I really liked it. Yeah, the Egyptians, uh, as well as, uh, what's his name, Fader Karan, Karen? The, that that dude as well also does a really good job. And I thought he had a more expanded role in the TV show. I mean, he was a character in the books, but not someone I really latched onto as much as I did in the show. Yeah, Fader Karan. Yeah, Karan. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, Commander Mormont yeah. from Game of Thrones. And th- I know that's why you latched onto him, Stephen. Yeah. Well, I saw him, I was like, man, this guy's so familiar. Who is he? So I had to do a Wikipedia. Oh. Didn't recognize him right away. I was watching the show with my brother-in-law, who's like a huge Game of Thrones fan. So there's a few, I think, actors and stuff that pop up from Game of Thrones in here. Maybe this I, is I the don't, I don't remember any others. Anyway, so it was fun watching it with him because he was really into it. So in this episode, they have, a, like I said, the sequence where Ma Costa tells Lyra about her parents and we talked about this in one of our book reviews, but I was really disappointed that they didn't have a flashback of Lord Asriel, of James McAvoy, you know, killing the other guy who was uh, what Mrs. Coulter's husband at the time. However, that ended up working out. I can't remember the exact uh, familial details there, but I wanted a, I wanted a flashback. I wanted some action, but we just got an info dump and I thought that was a missed opportunity. I know you said that when we were recording the other podcast, and I was like, "Oh, oh boy, yeah, <laughs> talking about that." Yeah, I thought James. Why wasn't James McAvoy in the show more? Maybe they only contracted him for two episodes. He was really only in the first one and the last one, right? Yeah, I think it had a few cutscenes to him, but not a lot. Which is true to the books because he really only pops up here and there. Yeah, but I was hoping for a more expanded role because he's a really interesting character and somewhat of the villain in an unexpected way. And I thought if they expanded him and then had the twist at the end, it would have been a little stronger. I agree with that. And especially because he's such a compelling actor, I wish that they would have been able to use him more or found a way to use him more if it wasn't due to money. Right. You you never really know with these things what exactly the reasoning was, but I guess that's what they decided was best for the show. I don't think it like detracted from the show. Like you said, I think it kind of is a missed opportunity, but I don't think that it was like, makes the show any worse in my opinion yeah i mean you get a great actor like james mcavoy he did he did a fantastic job with lord asriel made it made him into a great character in the two episodes that he appeared in so can't complain too much yeah 
So the other thing that happened towards the end here, there's some action is one of the Egyptian kids goes to infiltrate Mrs. Coulter's apartment and find some dirt, but he gets caught by the golden monkey and Mrs. Coulter. And there's some kind of weird karate stuff that happens, a little awkward. And then he ends up like falling down the elevator shaft and he disappears or no, his demon disappears. And as his demon disappears, some dust kind of like wafts off it and I thought throughout the show, they did a really good job of slowly kind of building this idea of dust into it more and more to the point where at the end, when the info dump happens about dust, it's it feels natural because you're pretty familiar with the idea by then. I will correct you with one thing. He didn't fall down the elevator. He jumped down the he like jumped down it so that he wouldn't get caught by Mrs. Coulter. Right. It was like a suicide sacrifice. I don't want to get caught type thing, right? Yeah. And I thought that this did a really great job at raising the stakes. You know, we've had, we've seen kids get kidnapped and we've seen, you know, a frozen head and we've, we've always known that the stakes were, were high in this show, but this did a really good job of being like, no, kids are going to die. You know, people are going to not make it and it's going to be heavy. There was also the scene, I think in the second episode when Lord Boreal crushes the butterfly demon of Mm. that like woman reporter that's trying to get info out of Lyra. Yeah. Do you, remember, do you remember that scene? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. An- another kind of dark scene. So there's no real direct violence, but there certainly is more, you know, some heavier stuff. There's some killing. Yeah. So episode four, we get everyone's favorite Alexander Hamilton on the show, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who for some reason is attached to the show and plays our Texan character, Lee, uh, Lee Scoresby. And really, can anyone say that he did a good job in this role? Like, this was bad right i wanted so much to like this because i was like they'll find a way to pull it off he doesn't really seem like it but they've done such a good job of casting everyone else they'll find a way and i just for the life of me i can't find a way to justify it maybe he really liked the show and pumped some money into it and was like i just want to be casted and so they said fine you can be lee scoresby but why lee scoresby what it is lee scoresby is one of the most iconic characters from the book (sighs) It was rough, man. His accent, I don't know what that was. And he was just kind of this goofy character. It, it did not work at all. Maybe he's just a fantasy fan. I know he's a big fan of King Killer Chronicle. And at one point was really attached to the TV show, but that appears to have halted. I don't know. I don't know how to justify this. I don't know either. I mean, is there a world in which he could have done a good job, do you think? or No, because his voice and his character is not meant to be Lee Scoresby, he's a different type of character. Well, I mean, you get somebody like James McAvoy who can do like a whole range of characters. I don't think Lynn's strength as a, in his profession is acting. It's acting, no. Yeah, it's, it's more on the creative side. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, Hamilton is amazing, but it's not because... I mean, he does a really good job as Alexander Hamilton, but he basically wrote that character around, I think, some of his strengths. But then again, like... You would you would look at Lin Manuel Miranda and you wouldn't think, oh, that's Alexander Hamilton. But now you kind of do. So maybe he was hoping he could do the same thing with Lee Scoresby or HBO was, or maybe yeah. maybe when they were doing the casting, it was like the height of Hamilton, and they're like, oh, if we just get him, then it'll make the show. You know, it'll draw everyone to the show. Man, what if uh, what if the King Killer Chronicle finally gets made and he insists upon being casted as like Eladin or something? Or Loden. That would be a disaster. <laughs> I could see him being... Like Abanthi? No, what's, what's Coates' assistant? Bast? Yeah, Bast. I could see him as being Bast. 
I feel like he's a little old for Bast. Yeah, but maybe. Yeah, because Bast is supposed to be kind of like a y- younger than Quoth. I could see him being like Quoth's father. He's a musician. Oh. That's perfect. He should be Quoth's uh, yeah. father. Ooh, he, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Dreamcasting. Dreamcasting. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so the, the good thing about this episode is even though Lynn didn't do a very good job, Yorick Bernison is on the scene and he's everyone's favorite armored bear and he's really great. And they did a really good. I thought that that friendship kind of worked between Yorick and, and Lee. It didn't really captivate me in the book, like their friendship and their relationship in the book didn't really captivate me. Whereas in the show, I felt a little bit more attached to that relationship between Lee and Yorick. Yeah, it seems pretty believable. They were, I mean, they weren't frenemies, but they were like begrudging, you know, kind of manly men type characters. Yeah. If you can say that Lin-Manuel Miranda's portrayal was a manly man. <laughs> or that a polar bear is a manly man. Yorick is pretty manly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's see. So this is really kind of where the plot starts taking off because now the Egyptians are, you know, they, they went into this port. They've got some, we've got some more allies. The Magisterium is starting to pick it up. And Mrs. Coulter is assembling her forces. So you see some things kind of coming together. There's a nice scene where uh, York gets his armor back after Lyra helps him and he busts out of the shack and the Magisterium are, are firing at him. And luckily, all of the bullets hit his armor. A little confused on the the armor, right? It's magic armor. Yeah, so what, the bullets are drawn to it? How does that it's work? It's magic armor. All right. This is similar, no spoilers, but Ryan and I just reviewed the uh, the ending of Gods of Blood and Powder. And there's some magic armor in that series. And we had some similar tips with the magic armor. So, uh, yeah, magic armor. It's magic armor. I don't know. I would like it to be explained more. I'm sorry. (laughs) Steven, it's magic armor. All right, Josh. Get over it. Josh Josh is fine with just magic being magic. I mean, come on. Like, it's it's his demon, right? Like, that's the armor for bears. That's like their their soul. Right. And and so it provides more protection than just like the physical area of the body that it covers. In my opinion. Okay, that works. And we see some good moments where York's super fierce and he's about to take down one of the Magisterium goons, but Lyra kind of talks him down or maybe Lee talks him down. One of the characters does. And then we go off into the fifth episode, which was a bit of a downer for me because it was a heavy will exposition episode and not that much happened. Eh. Some of the episodes were definitely not as strong. Yeah. I can agree with that. The other thing is I was so, I really liked Will's portrayal or the actor. I, I liked his portrayal of Will. So I, I, that kept me engaged throughout this lower parts of Will's story. Yeah. He was a pretty dour character, but Will is, Will's had a rough time. Yeah. Had a rough go of it, but he's a fighter for sure. Yeah. He lost his father and it drove his mother. It made his mother not super mentally stable. Yeah. Anyway, there's lots of exposition. I didn't really put down any specific plot points, but you start to get introduced to Will a little bit more. I did think they had a nicer house, a nicer flat, if you will, than I was expecting. Yeah, well, I think that didn't they get left some money or something? Yeah, it talks about that. Yeah, yeah I guess that makes sense. John Perry was, has been sending them money. Because that's how they okay. track down through the bank account or whatever. They see the money transfers coming in. Okay, good explanation. Yeah, we, we talked through through that one. So, yeah, so they deserve to have a nicer flat because uh, Moriarty is helping him out. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think of that? What do you think of that casting? That was really weird to me. I can't think of him as anyone other than Moriarty from Sherlock Holmes. 
Well, this is when you also have to remember that this is the BBC producing as well as HBO. And yeah. the BBC likes to use the same actors over and over and over. So I, I think I saw him something. He was in something else I saw recently as well. I mean, he's a good actor, no doubt. But oh, he's a, yeah. Some of these roles you kind of typecast yourself into. And I have trouble seeing him as anyone other than crazy Moriarty. Oh, dude. that uh, Okay. Well, let's not do spoilers for Sherlock. Yeah. If you haven't watched BBC Sherlock, definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Okay. So towards the end of episode five, we have a resolution with Egyptians and we find Billy who's been cut away from his demon and he comes back and he, he dies shortly afterwards because his soul has been ripped away from him. This is kind of another good step in the plot that's going to get us to where we eventually need to go in episode six, where Lyra is captured at the end. Is Ly- Lyra's captured, right? That's what happens at the end of episode five. Yeah, they come and invade their little hideout. Right. And then they take her to the creepy Stranger Things vibey compound that's in the middle of the uh, of the Russian winter. I mean, it was a really well set up. The setting was really strong is, is what I'm trying to say. And maybe I described that a little bit weird. Yeah. What do you think of the vibe here? I don't I don't remember the name of this area. It definitely has. It does have one. Oh. Uh, Bullvanger. Bullvanger. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, again, it was, I thought it did a great job. It's like better than how I imagined it, I guess. They're able to take what little details on the page and like make this whole amazing setting around it. And when somebody can do that better than what I did when I was reading it, I really appreciate it. I put down a lot of notes for this episode. I think this was my favorite episode. Okay. They covered a lot of ground here. So you got the introduction to Bullvanger. You got Lyra meeting up with Roger again. You got Lyra being about to be captured and had her demon ripped away. Like her and Pantalaimon are both in the machine. The guillotine thing is about to come down and separate them, which we know would pretty much kill her. Mrs. Coulter comes in last minute and saves her. And like the look of horror on her face as she realizes that Lyra is about to be sacrificed is amazing. And then there's this amazing conversation between the two of them and there's some explanation into what's going on here a lot here and there's even more but let's talk about maybe these plot points so far so what do you think of mrs Coulter's performance here and and just the relationship between the two of them i mean stunning right like it's so easy to see uh, mrs Coulter as evil and she is like evil i think you could say but she still has love for lyra and she still cares about lyra's well-being so I thought that it did an amazing job, that her performance was amazing, and that the character development in this was amazing. I also think that Mrs. Coulter, like, I think that she believes that what they're doing is for the greater good, in a sense, that she really does want to find a way to, like, stop sin from entering the world is what it comes down to. But the fact that she doesn't believe in it enough to, like, let her daughter go through it is telling right it's it shows that she does that she's not like a fanatic about it right well she knows at this point that putting lyra through it is going to kill her right yeah she knows it's not quite right yet but yeah like you say it's all for the greater good but she tells lyra like hey once we get this figured out you're totally going to go through it because it's great for you yeah so it's it's really a fascinating thing to watch is that she loves her daughter but she also is doing these evil things to these other kids and Lyra can't reconcile it because it's kind of impossible to reconcile, like seeing your mother doing these terrible things, but protecting you. 
it was awesome. And this is what makes his dark materials a standout series, in my opinion, are these type of scenes where you see these conflicting natures of these characters warring with themselves. And you can see Lyra throughout this conversation with Mrs. Coulter. At the beginning, she's like fused. She knows definitely that some bad stuff is going on. But at the same time, this is her mother. And maybe she's still got some attachment to her. And she's always wanted to have parents, right? But then as she goes on and Mrs. Coulter starts to get a little crazier, Lyra, you can tell is like, okay, I actually cannot trust her. I need to get away out of this situation. And so she tricks her with the uh, with the mechanical fly thing. There's a yeah. name for it. The spy thing. Spy fly, I think is the name, right? Yeah. And then she busts out and takes down the whole compound with a, a fire alarm. And then she goes in and... Snowball or something. Yeah, she starts a snowball fight. And it's a good way of having a kid outsmart adults. I don't think anyone ever gets tired of seeing kids outsmart adults in creative ways. And then she switches on the machine and makes it all explode and, and gets out of there. So, yeah, a lot of ground was covered here. I think at that point she meets up with Lee Scoresby and Serafina. Oh, that's the other thing. The witches come in. The, the, whole, the whole battle happens here. Yeah. Right? Because her friends, the Egyptians, come in and they start fighting. I thought the fighting, like the choreography was not anything amazing. Like there's a scene where they're in the courtyard and they're all fighting is a little corny. Like there were all these one-on-one fights that were happening just like back and forth, punch, 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 or sword or whatever. But, you know, it wasn't supposed to be like the choreography was nothing special. But then the witches come in and they just like zoom around and take down a bunch of the uh, Magisterium goons. The witches are way too powerful. I feel like they're underutilized. Yeah. Do you think that that's do you think that's a witch's, witch's decision on not getting involved with stuff or what? I don't know. The witches have always been a weird character to me in this in these series. They're kind of some random groups that are of varying importance as the plot goes on. The witches are one of them. Never really understood. I still don't quite understand. It seems like they're more kind of like the lore teller group, mm-hmm. but I don't really understand how they relate to the whole allegory of, of everything that's going on here. I don't know. I'm not a huge witch fan in the series. It is hard, even in the books, to really find the witch's place. And so if you're a huge Dark Materials fan, I want to jump on Discord and tell us a little bit more about the witches than feel free there's also some cliff gas that come in another random plot element but we're fighting cliff gas all of a sudden is that is that in that yeah because this this episode ends when lyra falls out so like a lot of ground yeah covered in episode six well that's kind of the issue i had a little bit with the book was the pacing was that i felt like it was building towards this climax of happening at bullvinger but we didn't get that climate like it was kind of the climax, but it wasn't, you know, like they got out of it and we're still only on episode six. We still have two more episodes to go. And I felt like that in the book too. Like, is everything just falling action from here? I was a little bit confused by that. I I didn't have an issue with that. So I guess, yeah, you might be a a little confused, but at the end, it was still a really nice climax because we still have the whole thing with Ezreal and dust that needs to be wrapped up and they do a good job of that. Right. So I guess in the, in the grand scope of things, and when I read the book, I felt the same way, is that, like, I appreciate where the story went, but maybe confused isn't the right word, but, like, it changed up kind of the narrative structure of a lot of stories. I'm putting the climax, like, more towards the middle of the book than at the end of the book. I would say it's more, yeah, so this was a climax in terms of action, but the show does a really good job of making the final episode into more of an action scene when the Magisterium shows up in force. The book doesn't do that as much. 
Well, right. And, but I just mean like everything in the narrative of the story is pushing towards this conflict that's going to happen at Bullvanger. You know, she's going to find Will. Oh, she, right. She's going to find Will. She's going to take down this whole operation with the gobblers. Like, I feel like a lot of the elements of the story are pushing towards this being what the climax is. And in a yeah. sense it is, but in a sense it really isn't. So that's where the... Yeah. And and you mean Roger is Roger, the one she's uh, yeah. trying to find. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. She's trying to find Roger. The Egyptians have their own thing. And actually the Egyptians kind of bow out after this episode. So yeah, it was a little different type of narrative. And there are some things I like and didn't like about that. Like it wasn't quite as cohesive, which doesn't always sit super well with me. But it does a good job of, you know, kind of subverting your expectations a little bit. And there's a really nice twist at the end with Asriel that I was not expecting. Yeah. So anyway, I, I like how it all played out. But again, like it was a little weird getting there for me. OK, so episode seven starts with Mrs. Coulter surveying the damage in Bulvenga. And she goes completely crazy and just starts screaming. And this was the most terrifying part of the show. Like just watching this unfold, watching her scream and there's like spittle flying out of her mouth. Ugh. That's incredible. I was like, okay, this woman is crazy. Yeah, this is what I was talking about over the, just this, talking about before, just this stuff just boiling beneath the surface. And then this is when it just boils over, you know, and the water hits the hits the stove and starts sizzling. You know, that's just what I, the image that's conjured by the scene. Yeah, and talk about an acting job. I was, I was so unsettled and like, ugh, I just got chills watching this screaming performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, anyway, so episode seven, this is where the bears get to their climax. So Yorick, we know, has been, she should have been the king. He was kind of disposed over this setup that happened. You know, Mrs. Coulter is kind of funding his enemy, Yofer Ragnison, Rackinson, something like that, Ragnison. And then, so so these bears are going to fight. And Lyra goes in and she tricks Yofer. She tells him that she is actually a demon. Yofer falls for it because... Everyone falls for Lyra's lies, and then the bears fight. And this was actually a little disappointing to me because I thought that for such a another climactic scene, the bear fight happened really suddenly, and it also ended really suddenly. Like you never even really saw what happened. You just the the camera kind of cut to Lyra who was scared, and then the bear fight happened, and and York won, and that was it. I agree. I mean, I think that this would be really hard to do a convincing CGI polar bear fight on the you know like they are still budget constrained you know so maybe that had something to do with it so i would rather have them do what they did than to have like a really unconvincing thing like kind of what happened in the witcher with the dragon you know oh yeah that dragon in the witcher no the yeah. cgi was awful so i would rather have a little cutaway scene where you you, you don't see a lot of it and look at liar's face and the look of horror or whatever on her face and lean on to your strength which is Lyra's job of acting versus where you might be a little, have more of a weakness, which is the CGI with this polar bear fight. Yeah. I guess a polar bear CGI fight is probably maybe a little pricey to put together. I have no idea. I'd imagine. So then in this episode as well, there's some more will stuff. Like I said, I just wasn't super into that. I just thought it was too slow. And then at the end you have Lyra and Roger meeting up with Azriel. And this is another very strong moment. Both of Lyra's relationships with her parents are really what makes the show because, and we talked about this, Josh, in our previous uh, book reviews, this moment when Asriel sees them come in and he sees Lyra come in and he's like, he got this look of horror 
And he says, no, you know, not you. Why, why are you here? I didn't send for you. And then he sees Roger. And then he's got this kind of weird, like, look of satisfaction. And it's really kind of this evil look and, and very unsettling as a viewer to see him. You, you don't understand what this is, what's going on here. But all of a sudden, seeing Roger makes you just like assages his previous concerns and he's, he's fine with it and he's happy to see Lyra. So you get the sense that something bad is about to happen. Okay, so this is the best part of the TV show was that I think the best part of the show is that scene. Matt, James McAvoy and Ly- what's the actress that plays Lyra, like their whole interaction with the ending of that episode, the beginning of the next is what makes this TV show stand out, in my opinion. I think her name's Daphne Keene. Yeah, Daphne Keene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their interaction and their how these scenes went is what made this show amazing, in my opinion. What took it from like, okay, here's a fun show and I'm enjoying it, being like, this is a standout performance and one that I'm going to be fully invested in moving forward. Uh, my wife hadn't read the books and we were watching it and she knew, right, that there's going to be something bad coming just from that look on his face and just from how they filmed it. It was awesome. Yeah, but you don't know what it is. No, you don't know what it is. It also shows you how fanatical he is, Lord Azrael is, because I think I bought that like he could be willing to make that sacrifice, like to sacrifice his daughter, even though we don't really know what the sacrifice is going to be. But you bought that he was so horrified because he knew himself well enough that he knew that he would make that sacrifice to get to where he needed to go. You know, that's where I think the look of horror came from. And I think that that was really portrayed well on the screen. I guess it could have been either way. Like the horror could have been, no, I have to kill her. Or the horror could have been, oh, wait, my plans are not going to work now because I can't kill her. Right. But I'm kind of with you. I would say that I, I agree that he would have. had Yeah, that's where it came across to me. That's what I got from that whole performance is that like he knows himself well enough to, to know that he would be disgusted by himself, but that he would do it. That's why maybe I'm just reading way too much into it, but that's what I got from it. Yeah. So I guess then you have to conclude that Mrs. Coulter is the better of the two awful parents because she would not have actually sacrificed her daughter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Man, Lyra has it rough. Her parents are probably the worst parents I've ever seen depicted. It looks like it makes the jerseys look like loving, nourishing guardians, you know? Yeah. I mean, at least one of her parents wouldn't have sacrificed her for her own means. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, poor poor girl. Going along, so so I would say that Lyra's relationships with her parents are really what makes the show. It's what the books were centered around, and yeah, that that really drives the show along. One little piece of trivia that maybe you don't know is you know who Lyra, the the actress Daphne Keene's real life father is. No, he's in the show. It's uh, Father MacPhail, the uh, the bald ma- the head like head magisterium guy. Oh, really? Yeah, he's her real life father. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, just a little piece of trivia there. So now going into the the final episode where everything kind of gets wrapped up, at least for this series, for this season. So the Magisterium shows up in force. I don't think they show up in this much force in the book, but I think it really wraps up the season well because the Magisterium is portrayed as much more of a threat in the TV show, which I thought was really nicely done. Because in the book, I was always a little uncertain. As yeah. to how seriously I should take the magisterium. It showed that they had like a military presence, not just like right. a social, political influence. You know, it was like, dang, these guys have like some force behind what they, you know, force behind them. Yeah. And reading the books, maybe that was something that was always a little ambiguous to me. Like how much of a threat are these people really? They totally seem like a threat in the TV show. 
you have a nice moment with maybe not a nice moment, but a strong moment between Lyra and Azriel, where he explains dust. He also tells her that he's never called himself a father. So you've got some really conflicting things here uh, where he's being a crappy parent, but he's also teaching his daughter what he's like. He's trying to justify himself is maybe what yeah. I'm getting out of this. Yeah, because he's always seen himself as more of an uncle. Like, I think that's how he saw himself was, you know, her uncle, like this guy that was going to try and be like an influence on her life a little bit, like, you know, teach her some cool things. She knew that she had some family out there doing some awesome things. But that's kind of how he saw himself, I think. Yeah, he clearly never wanted to be a father and all she is is messing up his plans. But at the same time, he is duty bound enough to try to say like, hey, if you're here and you're part of my life and in my daughter, I'm going to teach you a little bit about what I'm doing here and try to justify myself to you. Yeah. So we get the we get the explanation that dust represents original sin and he is trying to go into these different worlds and like disprove what the magis- the lies the magisterium has been telling. Uh, Mrs. Coulter has been trying to cut the sin away from children. So this is where the, the allegory, the religious allegory kind of comes in. And I like the way that it was introduced here. I think it'll be stronger in the next seasons because you get much more of a resolution in the books, at least. So I think it's set up really well. Yeah, I really agree. And I think that this is where it gives you a lot of opportunities to sit and reflect on what the show is trying to go for. I like that it didn't really lean away from like the religious undertones that the books had. In a sense, it leaned into them Yeah, with scenes like this. One other strong moment was with Lyra and Roger in the blanket for it. And especially if you know it's coming from reading the books, or if you know, if you picked up enough from the look that Israel gave at the end of episode seven, you know that this moment is probably the end for Roger or something bad is happening. And so this just kind of tender moment between the two of them as children, it's like the last moment when they're really kids. I I thought it was really well done, really kind of subtle, but strong. Totally agree. They did an amazing job of showing that Again, that Lyra's whole journey is about Roger. You know, like she leaves, she leaves uh, Jordan College for Roger. She goes and she, everything she does is to find Roger and to save him. And that continues throughout, you know, the rest of the, the series. And this whole like little conversation they have brings that home and recenters you that she loves this kid, you know, like they're best friends. They, they've gone through life together in the absence of both of their parents, they've relied on each other for like everything. And it's easy to forget that. And this conversation helps recenter you on that. And then at the very end, she almost saves him right after Azrael kidnaps him, takes him up to the top of the mountain. She's right there staring at the cage about to maybe do something to help him. And the guillotine thing comes down and separates the demon. He's killed. The energy is released and all the climax happens. So, yeah, the relationship with Roger is really strong, really a heartbreaking moment. And then really just a moment where you realize, you know, what a what a monster Azrael actually is and what lengths he's willing to go to. And that was it was all done really well on screen. You didn't get lost in the action. I think that it helped you stay connected to the characters, to what they're feeling. It didn't just try and cut away from that by showing you some cool set pieces or anything like that. Like you were connected to what Lyra must be going through the horror that she was feeling, the horror that Roger was feeling, and the, in a sense, like the success that Lord Azrael is feeling as well, you know, that this is everything he's worked for and that it's actually working the way he thought it would work. Right. And then the, then the show ends with him going into 
the other worlds, off into, who knows, Lyra follows, Mrs. Coulter does not. Lyra kind of hides from her. There's a moment where she could have been like, you know, mother, I'm here, right? Because she's she knows that she's there, but she decides she's off on her own now, sadly, after being betrayed by both of her parents. Rough go. But uh, it's, it sets up really well for the next season. And then Will also enters on his side. So I'm excited to see more Will in the second season now that we have him set up a little bit. But if we, if we want to go into worst of the best now, that was it for me. I like that he was introduced as a character. I'm excited to see where it goes. But I thought it was just too slow in all the different little cuts to him throughout the season. So my worst of the best is Lee Scoresby. Because having said that, the best thing about the show is the casting, I think. Every single actor that they got on screen, I think, nailed the performance. And so that, I think, is the best part of the show. And the worst part of the casting is we've already kind of beaten its death, but is is Lynn as Lee. Uh, yeah. Maybe he's going to pull out something better for season two. Maybe he's been watching Maybe. YouTube videos and he's working on his Texan accent. Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast, I don't know what advice I'd give you. Yeah. I don't know how to make it better. Like, is the accent the only thing? It's just like the whole mannerism is bad. Yeah. You just can't take him seriously as it as Lee Scorsby, I don't think. Whatever. We, we've talked about that enough. All right. On, on that note, I think let's just close with maybe something positive. I think we really both love the show. Excited for season two to come out. Yeah. It's doing a great job. Great, a great adaptation. It's really leaning into what it is from the books. And it's not the next Game of Thrones. We didn't ever want it to be. It's great for what it is. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm excited to see um, a, a really high quality show come out that doesn't have to lean into the high content of a lot of the TVMA shows um, and, and does a great job on its own, pr- projecting a lot of strong themes and, and relying on some really deep things rather than just, you know, gore and, and sex, and etc. Yeah, I think it did a great job. It nailed the characters. It nailed the casting. It nailed the sets and costumes. Um, if I were to give it a rating, I'd say nine out of 10 and I'm looking forward to the next season. It's one of my most anticipated series that's on the docket and season one only, only made me more excited for the show. Nice. Yeah. I'll go maybe eight and a half out of 10, but still a really strong rating for me. Yeah. So thanks for listening to this episode of his dark material season one. If you like our content at Pentology, check us out at Pentology books or at www.pentologybooks.com and hop on our discord and chat us up. So thanks, Josh. Chat with you next time. Yep. See ya.